Chapter 10, Part 1 of Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot. Chapter 10, Part 1 Bomb Throwing from Aircraft. During the piping times of peace, the utility of aircraft as weapons of offense was discussed freely in an academic manner. It was urged that the usefulness of such vessels in this particular field would be restricted to bomb-throwing. So far, these contentions have been substantiated during the present campaign. At the same time, it was averred that even as a bomb-thrower, the ship of the air would prove an uncertain quantity and that the results achieved would be quite contrary to expectations here again theory has been supported by practice inasmuch as the damage wrought by bombs has been comparatively insignificant the zeppelin raids upon antwerp and britain were a fiasco in the military sense the damage inflicted by the bombs was not at all in proportion to the quantity of explosive used true in the case of Antwerp, it demoralized the civilian population somewhat effectively, which perhaps was a desired end, but the military results were nil. The Zeppelin, and indeed all dirigibles of large size, have one advantage over aeroplanes. They are able to throw bombs of larger size and charge with greater quantities of high explosive and shrapnel than those which can be hurled from heavier-than-air machines thus it has been stated that the largest zeppelins can drop single charges exceeding one ton in weight but such a statement is not to be credited the shell generally used by the zeppelin measures about forty seven inches in length by eight and a half inches in diameter and varies in weight from two hundred to two hundred forty two pounds where destruction pure and simple is desired, the shell is charged with a high explosive such as picric acid or TNT. The colloquial abbreviation for the devastating agent scientifically known as trinitrotoluene, the base of which, in common with all the high explosives used by the different powers and variously known as lydite, melanite, chedite, and so forth, is picric acid. Such a bomb, if it strikes the objective, a building for instance, fairly and squarely, may inflict widespread material damage. On the other hand, where it is desired to scatter death, as well as destruction, far and wide, an elaborate form of shrapnel shell is utilized. The shell, in addition to a bursting charge, contains bullets, pieces of iron, and other metallic fragments. When the shell bursts, their contents, together with the pieces of the shell, which is likewise broken up by the explosion, are hurled in all directions over a radius of some fifty yards or more, according to the bursting charge. These shells are fired upon impact, a detonator exploding the main charge. The detonator, comprising fulminite of mercury, is placed in the head or tail of the missile. To secure perfect detonation and to distribute death-dealing contents evenly in all directions, it is essential that the bomb should strike the ground almost at right angles. Otherwise, the contents are hurled irregularly and perhaps in one direction only. One great objection to the percussion system, as the method of impact detonation is called, is that the damage may be localized. A bomb launched from a height of, say, 1,000 feet attains terrific velocity due to the force of gravity in conjunction with its own weight, 
in consonance with the law concerning a falling body. By the time it reaches the ground, it buries itself to a certain depth before bursting, so that the forces of the explosion become somewhat muffled, as it were. A huge deep hole, a miniature volcano crater, is formed, while all the glass in the immediate vicinity of the explosion may be shattered by the concussion, and the walls of adjacent buildings be bespattered with shrapnel. Although it is stated that an airship is able to drop a single missile weighing one ton in weight, there has been no attempt to prove the contention by practice. In all probability, the heaviest shell launched from a zeppelin has not exceeded 300 pounds. There is one cogent reason for such a belief. A bomb weighing one ton is equivalent to a similar weight of ballast. If this were discarded suddenly, the equilibrium of the dirigible would be seriously disturbed it would exert a tendency to fly upwards at a rapid speed. It is doubtful whether the plane's controlling movement in the vertical plane would ever be able to counteract this enormous vertical thrust. Something would have to submit to the strain. Even if the dirigible displaced, say, 20 tons, and a bomb weighing one ton were discharged, the weight of the balloon would be decreased suddenly by approximately 5% so that it would shoot upwards at an alarming speed, and some seconds would elapse before control was regained. The method of launching bombs from airships varies considerably. Some are released from a cradle, being tilted into position ready for firing, while others are discharged from a tube somewhat reminiscent of that used for firing torpedoes, with the exception that little or no initial impetus is imparted to the missile. The velocity it attains is essentially gravitational. The French favor the tube-launching method, since thereby it is stated to be possible to take more accurate aim. The objective is sighted and the bomb is launched at the critical moment. In some instances, the French employ an automatic detonator, which corresponds in a certain measure to the time fuse of a shrapnel shell fired from a gun. The bomb-thrower reads the altitude of his airship as indicated by his barometer or other recording instrument, and, by means of a table at his command, ascertains in a moment the time which will elapse before the bomb strikes the ground. The automatic detonator is set in motion and the bomb released, to explode approximately at the height to which it is set. When it bursts, the full force of the explosion is distributed downwards and laterally. Owing to the difficulty of ensuring the explosion of the bomb at the exact height desired, it is also made to explode upon impact so as to make doubly sure of its efficacy. Firing timed bombs from aloft, however, is not free from excitement and danger, as the experience of a French airman demonstrates. His dirigible had been commanded to make a night raid upon a railway station, which was a strategical junction for the movement of the enemy's troops. Although the hostile searchlights were active, the airship contrived to slip between the spokes of light without being observed. By descending to a comparatively low altitude, the pilot was able to pick up the objective. Three projectiles were discharged in rapid succession, and then the searchlights, being concentrated, struck the airship, revealing its presence to the troops below. Instantly, a spirited fusillade broke out. The airmen, by throwing ballast and other portable articles overboard, pell-mell, rose rapidly, pursued by the hostile shells. In the upward travel, the bomb-thrower decided to have a parting shot. The airship was steadied momentarily to enable the range to be taken, 
The automatic detonator was set going, and the bomb slipped into the launching tube. But, for some reason or other, the missile jammed. The situation was desperate. In a few seconds, the bomb would burst and shatter the airship. The bomb-thrower grabbed a tool and, climbing into the rigging below, hacked away at the bomb-throwing tube until the whole equipment was cut adrift and fell clear of the vessel. Almost instantly there was a terrific explosion in mid-air. The blast of air caused the vessel to roll and pitch in a disconcerting manner, but as the airman permitted the craft to continue its upward course unchecked, she soon steadied herself and was brought under control once more. The bombs carried by aeroplanes differs considerably from that used by dirigibles, is smaller and more convenient to handle, though considering its weight and size it is remarkably destructive. In this instance, complete reliance is placed upon detonation by impact. The latest types of British warplane bombs have been made particularly formidable, those employed in the raids in force ranging up to 95 pounds in weight. The type of bomb which has proved to be the most successful is pear-shaped. The tail spindle is given an arrowhead shape, the vanes being utilized to steady the downward flight of the missile. In falling, the bomb spins round, the rotating speed increasing as the projectile gathers velocity. The vanes act as a guide, keeping the projectile in as vertical a plane as possible, and ensuring that the rounded head shall strike the ground. The earlier types of bombs were not fitted with these vanes, the result being that sometimes they turned over and over as they fell through the air, while more often than not they failed to explode upon striking the ground. The method of launching the bomb also varies considerably, experience not having indicated the most efficient method of consummating this end. In some cases, the bombs are carried in a cradle placed beneath the aeroplane and launched merely by tilting them in a kind of sling, one by one, to enable them to drop to the ground, this action being controlled by means of a lever. In another instance, they are dropped over the side of the car by the pilot, the tail of the bomb being fitted with a swivel and ring to facilitate the operation. Some of the French aviators favor a still simpler method. The bomb is attached to a thread and lowered over the side. At the critical moment, it is released simply by severing the thread. Such aeroplane bombs, however, constitute a menace to the machine and to the pilot. Should the bomb be struck by hostile rifle or shell fire while the machine is aloft, an explosion is probable. While, should the aeroplane make an abrupt descent, the missiles are likely to be detonated. A bomb which circumvents this menace, and which in fact will explode only when it strikes the ground, is that devised by Mr. Martin Hale. This projectile follows the usual pear shape, and has a rotating tail to preserve direction when in flight. The detonator is held away from the main charge by a collar and ball bearing, which are held in place by the projecting end of a screw-releasing spindle. When the bomb is dropped, the rotating tail causes the spindle to screw upwards until the projection moves away from the steel balls, thereby allowing them to fall inward when the collar and the detonator are released. In order to bring about this action, the bomb must have a fall of at least 200 feet. When the bomb strikes the ground, the detonator falls down on the charge, fires the ladder, and thus brings about the bursting of the bomb. The projectile is of the shrapnel type. It weighs 20 pounds complete, is charged with some 4 pounds of TNT, and carries 340 steel balls, which represent a weight of 5 and 3 quarter pounds.
the firing mechanism is extremely sensitive and the bomb will burst upon impact with the hull of an airship water or soft soil this projectile when discharged speedily assumes the vertical position so that there is every probability that it will strike the ground fairly and squarely although at the same time such an impact is not imperative because it will explode even if the angle of incidence be only five degrees it is remarkably steady in its flight the balancing and the design of the tail frustrating completely any tendency to wobble or to turn turtle while falling other types of missile may be used for instance incendiary bombs have been thrown with success in certain instances these bombs are similar in shape to the shrapnel projectile but are charged with petrol or some other equally highly inflammable mixture and fitted with a detonator when they strike the objective the bursting charge breaks up the shell releasing the contents and simultaneously ignites the combustible another shell is a smoke bomb which up to the present has been used only upon a restricted scale this missile is charged with a certain quantity of explosive to burst the shell and a substance which when ignited emits copious clouds of dense smoke the scope of such a shell is somewhat restricted it is used only for the purpose of obstructing hostile artillery fire the shells are dropped in front of the artillery position and the clouds of smoke which are emitted naturally interfere with the operations of the gunners these bombs have also been used with advantage to denote the position of concealed hostile artillery although their utility in this connection is somewhat uncertain owing to the difficulty of dropping the bomb so accurately as to enable the rangefinders to pick up the range. End of chapter 10, part 1. Recording by William Tomko.